We are in a series titled Turning the World Upside Down, working through the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, we actually took a break for Christmas and then for a, a vision series uh, in the first three weeks of January. And uh, we are just now returning to the Acts of the Apostles uh, after 10 weeks away. Um, we left off that study in the middle of chapter 18 of Acts. If you have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to open your Bible uh, to Acts. Acts is uh, the fifth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Find chapter 18. The Acts of the Apostles tells the story of the beginnings of the church and the expansion of the Christian mission throughout its first 30 to 40 or more years. If you've been here uh, since the start of this study, you get a gold star because this is message number 52 in this series, which means we've been in Acts now for a, a full year. And uh, and if you have been here from the beginning, you will recall that we observed at the beginning that a better name for the Acts of the Apostles may have been the ongoing work of Jesus Christ through his apostles or perhaps the acts of the Holy Spirit in and through the church. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church, and he is therefore the director of the life, the mission of the church in the world. Uh, By the Holy Spirit, he gave birth to the church on the day of that first feast of Pentecost, following Jesus' ascension into heaven, and he empowered and equipped the church for its life and mission. He continues to do that today. I'm not going to take time to do an extensive review this morning. If you've missed any of the messages in this series and would like to view any or all of them, uh, well, if you'd like to view all of them, make sure you get a really big bowl of popcorn um, and and uh, find mylpcoly, mylpcoly.com forward slash media. Or you can find us on YouTube at LifePoint Church of Olympia. But I'll remind you that when we broke at the, uh, towards the end of November there to begin our Advent series, we left Paul, Silas, and Timothy uh, in the city of Corinth uh, in Greece, which is where the action begins in this morning's scripture text. You may recall that the missionary team had previously crossed over from the Roman province of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey in Corinth across the Aegean Sea. And um, what did I just say? We left. I lost my, I lost my train of thought. Modern-day Turkey. And, the, and they crossed the, the, uh, the Aegean Sea from there to the province of Macedonia, which today is northern Greece. And, and their mission took them to the Macedonian cities of Philippi uh, and Thessalonica and Berea. From Berea, they again went southward to the province of Achaia, where they pro- proclaimed the gospel in the cities of Athens and Corinth. Paul's missionary strategy, as we saw earlier, was to evangelize cities as of first priority. And so... Uh, Paul didn't spend a lot of time in between cities in the in the countryside. He he uh, he moved directly to cities, and in each of those um, cities, he would go first to the Jewish synagogues, 
And there he would seek to reason with the Jews and help them to understand that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah um, for which all of Israel has longed uh, for thousands of years. We've previously observed a repeated pattern in Paul's experience in each city that he visited. And it goes something like this. Paul would arrive in town. He would go to the synagogue to reason with the Jews. Uh, Some would believe, some would not. He then moves on to proclaim the gospel to the Gentile population of that city. And again, some would believe, some would not. Opposition would inevitably arise, whether from the Jews or the Gentiles or sometimes both. A riot would break out. Somebody would get beat up. Uh, Often that person was Paul. And then he would leave town and go on to the next city and repeat it all again. Uh, In Corinth, where we rejoin Paul today, All of the above took place except the part where Paul leaves town. When the riot broke out and the Jews brought Paul before Gallio, the local Roman proconsul, Gallio refused to hear their case. He said, this is a... This is an intramural squabble in there in your Jewish community, and it's not worthy of my time. And and the net effect of that not only was that that Paul was delivered um, from uh, being imprisoned, but also that um, it protected because Gallio had spoken this. It became, as it were, Roman law, and it protected Paul. Um, and his ministry, at least for a time, uh, and the ministries of other Christians who may come behind him. For example, a guy like Apollos, again, by force of Roman law. And I love Luke's penchant for understatement here. Uh, he says that he, Paul stayed in Corinth many days longer. And in fact, um, he stayed another year and a half and enjoyed a fruitful ministry there in Corinth. So will you stand with me and let's read this morning's scripture text together, Acts 18, beginning at verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Achilla. At Kencrei he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Achilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This is God's word. You may be seated. 
title I've given to this message uh, is the heart of a disciple maker, the heart of a disciple maker. In these verses, we, we see something of the hearts of four disciple makers, namely the Apostle Paul, a rising star named Apollos, the dynamic duo of Priscilla and Aquila. Last week, I introduced a new vision statement for the life and ministry of LifePoint Church. It was simply this, our vision is to make disciples who make disciples here, near, and far. Our vision is to make disciples who make disciples here, near, and far. It's a biblical, it's practical, it's easy to remember. We want to make disciples who will themselves be spiritual reproducers and contribute to a movement that results in generations of Christ followers. And uh, because that is our vision, um, the implementation of that begins uh, in early childhood and goes right on through our adult ministries. But let's pause for just a moment and ask the question, what is disciple-making? Uh, I imagine there are lots of lots and lots of definitions of disciple-making uh, out there. Um, allow me to suggest a, a simple one, and I'm going to say this slowly and clearly. I'm going to repeat it so that you can write it down, uh, and then we'll, we'll return to it a few times during this message. But here it is, disciple-making is coming alongside someone. Disciple-making is coming alongside someone in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to help them take the next steps in their walk of faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. Disciple-making is coming alongside someone in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to help them take the next steps in their walk of faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. Notice that it's relational. Disciple-making is coming alongside someone. It's not primarily doing what I'm doing right now, standing a few feet above contradiction and uh, speaking down to you. Um, It's not simply coming up under to support and encourage someone. It's coming alongside someone. Let me repeat the definition. Disciple-making is coming alongside someone in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to help them take the next steps in their walk of faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. So it's relational, but notice also that it's spiritual. Disciple-making is done in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. So the work of sanctification in the life of an individual is exclusively the work of the Holy Spirit. By sanctification, we mean that work that the Holy Spirit uh, exclusively does in the life of a believer to conform them progressively to the image of Jesus Christ, to, to create, to form the character of Jesus in each individual Christian. You and I are not the Holy Spirit. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that some people try to be the Holy Spirit? We shouldn't do that. Uh, We should not try to be the Holy Spirit or act like the Holy Spirit. Rather, uh, we are to cooperate with him in what he is doing in the life of a person he has given us the privilege to serve. The last thing that any of us should try to do is to make disciples of ourselves. It's scary enough when you have children and... uh, you know, several months into the whole enterprise, uh, you see your own sins grow legs and run around your house, right? Because 
because they're, they're becoming like you and they want to be like you. And at some point we want to say to them very gently, you really don't want to be like me. You want to really be like Jesus. And so I'm going to, I'm going to follow Jesus. And so as I'm following Jesus, you, you follow me in, in following him. Jesus said of, of the Pharisees at one point, um, very affectionately, you, you travel over land and sea to make one disciple. And when you have made him, he's twice the son of hell that you are. Jesus being very kind in those words, right? So we don't want to make disciples of ourselves. Perish that thought. We want to make disciples of Jesus. So disciple-making, again, by definition, coming alongside someone in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to help them take the next steps in their walk of faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. So third, will will you notice with me that the work of disciple-making is temporary, It's temporary. Uh, Most discipling relationships will be limited to a period of time, whether it's a a short time or a long time. It will be limited in time. We meet someone at some point on their spiritual journey, and uh, we walk a mile, two miles or more with them. We help them take their next steps in their walk of faith and obedience to Jesus Christ, whatever those steps may be. And then God brings someone else to walk the next part of their journey with them. And that's the beauty, one of the beauties of the body of Christ. Uh, We are a community of disciple makers. How do we know what those next steps are? I'm glad you asked that question. So uh, the answer is to refer back to points one and two. The only means by which we can really discern what those next steps need to be is that we come alongside that person and do a whole lot of listening, listening to their heart, listening to their mind, understanding where they have been, how God has worked in the past, what they may be struggling with in the present. So we're going to listen well, and then we're going to allow the Holy Spirit to give us insight and understanding. And so we need to pray and pray hard. Lord, I want to be useful in this person's life to help them become more like Jesus. Will you show me where to invest my efforts? How do I help them take the next steps that you want them to take in their life? Remember that Jesus said to his disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Notice in Jesus' short definition that, that disciple-making is, again, relational. He said, follow me. Follow me. He invited them into close, personal relationship with himself. And that relationship became the very context, the dynamic environment, if you will, in which they would grow. Mark 3.14 says that Jesus chose 12 to do two things. First of all, that they might be with him. And secondly, that he might send them out to preach. So the context of disciple-making was simply to be with Jesus. Jesus' definition is also intentional. Don't miss that phrase, I will make you. Follow me and I will make you. I will make you. And third, it's missional. What, What he intended to make of them as they followed him was fishers of men. 
He intended that his disciples would become disciple makers who would in turn make other disciples who would in turn make other disciples as well. And they did. And so we're sitting here today. Let me add one more thing before we move into the scripture text this morning. The scope of disciple making includes the entire life of a Christian from birth to death. And so it includes things like evangelism, leading that person to personal faith in Christ. Uh, You might come alongside someone and find out that they've never really understood what it means to be a Christian. And and so the first step is to lead them uh, to faith in Christ. Uh, Secondly, enfolding, which is a a word from the world of shepherding, um, that you you bring the sheep into the fold, enfold them. And, And for us, it means welcoming that person into the life of the local church, into the community, the fellowship, the, the relational network of the church. And then third, education, teaching them God's word and how to apply it to their own lives. Fourth, equipping. Equipping, helping them to discover their specific calling and, and their, their specific giftedness and how to use the, the tools that the Holy Spirit has provided to them for their own ministry. And then finally, engagement, engagement, which I just chose it out of the air because it starts with E, but engagement, commissioning them, releasing them to their own ministry and mission. And if you've ever, you know, kind of grown some kids through the teen years, you know that there is a point at which they really need to, they, they really need to go, right? I mean, you, you remember those moments? You really need to go. You, you really need, not because I'm ticked at you, but that's a possibility, but, but you really need to go. You need to spread your wings. You need to go and live your own life. You need to go and do the things that God has been preparing you to do. Live, go live that life. And sometimes you put your foot squarely in the middle of their back and help them on their way. Uh, hopefully you don't have to do that. The same thing is true in discipleship, though. There's a point where you say to that person, you, you know, you, you, you don't need to become dependent on me. You need to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. And so I'm sending you. I'm, I'm releasing you. Uh, there, there can, I suppose, be a point where disciple-making could become toxic because you foster a, 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 an artificial dependence. At some point, you need to release them and hold them responsible to uh, live out what God has been working into their lives. Well, let's look at these four characters. Begin. We're going to begin with Paul, as you see on your notes form there. Let me read verses 18 to 23 for us again. Uh, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Achilla. At Kencreai he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. How many of you like travelogues? You get travelogue fans here? Come on, Marcy, I know you are. Raise your hand. Um, 
we like to watch travelogues at our house, and so we've seen more than our share of Rick Steves and and and, and his ilk. Um, but but this passage reads like a travelogue. Paul travels from Corinth uh, across the Aegean. Uh, oh, actually, first of all, down to the seaport at Kenkrei, and then and that's how you pronounce that weird word, Kenkrei. From Kenkrei, Priscilla and Aquila board a ship. Um, along with Paul, they sail eastward across the Aegean Sea to the city of Ephesus. From Ephesus, Paul boards another ship that takes him southward through the Aegean Sea into the Mediterranean and then eastward to Caesarea Maritima or Caesarea by the sea in Israel. Uh, from Caesarea, it says he went up, which is a sh- slang or shorthand for going up to Jerusalem uh, from Caesarea. From just Jerusalem, he journeys north to Syria and Antioch. From Antioch, he makes his way back up into the regions of Galatia and Phrygia, which again today are probably central Turkey. And so in six short verses, Paul has covered by sea and land in excess of 3,500 miles. And not even a half-hour show, just six verses. Uh, 3,500 miles or more. Uh, but these verses reveal a whole lot more than, than just an accumulation of miles. They reveal in the Apostle Paul something of the heart of a disciple maker. And that, that shouldn't be surprising because second only to the Lord Jesus, whom I think we would acknowledge as the chief disciple maker, is Paul the Apostle. Certainly there's no lack of New Testament passages that would re- richly reveal that reality regarding Paul. But what do we find here in this passage regarding that that disciple-making heart? Allow me to point out just a couple of indicators. The first is in the latter part of verse 18, where Luke tells us that at Kenkrea he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Interesting. What's that all about? What kind of vow was Paul under that required him to cut his hair? Well, the words hair and vow probably point to Paul having taken what is called, in the Old Testament, a Nazarite vow. Uh, it's described in detail in the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 6. Uh, you can read it for yourself. It's a long chapter. But the person who took the oath would abstain from alcohol and from cutting their hair for the duration of the vow. So understand this, he would separate himself from some things in order to be separated unto the Lord. Does that make sense? He separated himself from some things with the goal of separating himself unto the Lord. At the conclusion of the vow, the individual would cut his hair and have it placed by a priest on the temple altar where it was burned as a peace offering. So having cut his hair in Kenkrei, he would have kept it, you know, tucked it into his suitcase, kept it in his possession until he arrived in Jerusalem, and then he would have taken it up to the temple there in Jerusalem. Luke gives no explanation regarding Paul's vow. But Bible scholars have proposed a number of legitimate explanations of why Paul might have done this. Uh, I don't have time or desire to unpack them this morning. I would rather take the description in number six, kind of at face value, and suggest that 
whatever the larger issues for Paul, submitting to the Nazarite vow may have been, at the heart of that vow, as you read number six, is this personal, passionate desire to be holy and separated from the world, uh, from the passions of the world, uh, unto the Lord. And in fact, the words separate and separation occur no less than 12 times in number six. And and the words consecrate and consecration uh, appear five times alongside those. So remember... uh, that he wrote to the Philippians, and we actually saw this text last week. He said, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. You remember that passage? He said, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, who talks like that, right? You ever met anybody that talks like that? No, you haven't. Neither have I. Just Paul. And uh, And the person that talks like that is a person that's all about it. It's a person that's really thought it through, right? I mean, there's a lot there. And at the heart of it is just this passionate desire to belong to Jesus, body, mind, and soul. Some have speculated that for Paul, this vow represented kind of a reversion to Jewish legalism, an inconsistency in his insistence on salvation, not by works, but by Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But but the Nazarite vow stood quite apart from from the sacrificial system. Even from the beginning, it was more akin to what today we would call a spiritual discipline. Not unlike fasting, for example, of, of turning away from some things so as to be separate unto the Lord. It had nothing to do with earning one's salvation and everything to do with strengthening in his own heart and mind the recognition of complete belonging, total dependence on God for his very life, and and pursuing the goal of a deeper, more surrendered relationship with him. So so as we look to Paul to catch the glimpse of to catch a glimpse of the heart of a disciple maker, we can say at least this that the heart of a disciple-maker is, above all else, a heart of devotion to God. None of us can impart to others what we ourselves do not possess. So if we're to become disciple-makers, then once again, matters of the heart are at the very heart of the matter. Those who would be disciple-makers must ask ourselves, is my life surrendered to Jesus Christ? Am I passionately pursuing a life that's separate and consecrated to him? And the reality is that as we ask those questions, all of us realize that we have a long way to go in our walk with God. But again, the life we want to see replicated in those we disciple is a life of growing love, deepening faith and increasing obedience to Jesus Christ. So so even Paul, having said what he said, then goes on to say, I'm not there yet. 
I've got a long way to go. And yet Paul uh, would also have said and did say, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. And and to Timothy, he said, the things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So even though he wasn't there, Paul said, I'm getting there. Follow me as I follow Jesus. I'm pursuing him so you can, you can pursue me or you, you can follow me in my pursuit. Reading the events that are described in verses 19 to 23, it's, it's kind of easy to get the sense that Paul was in a hurry. Luke offers no explanation as to why, for example, Paul left that productive ministry in Corinth. He just tells us he did. Paul gets to Ephesus, goes into the synagogue, reasons with the Jews there, as he always does. Surprisingly, they asked him to stay, which is a rare moment in the life of the Apostle Paul, especially among the Jews. But instead, he leaves, saying, I'll return to Ephesus if God wills. And we know that he eventually did return to Ephesus, but his haste on this occasion in leaving is also unexplained. Luke just doesn't tell us why. Priscilla and Achilla remain there at Ephesus. Paul moves on. Luke tells us that, that Paul's ship arrived in, in Herod's magnificent um, seaport at Caesarea. And from there he went up to Jerusalem. We can assume that, that Paul, while he was there, went to the temple to complete his Nazarite vow. Uh, but Luke, uh, all Luke tells us about what took place in Jerusalem is that he greeted the church. And he says it so briefly that you can almost get the sense that, that, you know, Paul goes up to Jerusalem, he, he, he takes his hair to the temple to be burned on the altar, and then, and then he goes to wherever it was that the church was meeting, knocks on the door, and says, hey guys, see ya, just gone. From Jerusalem, he, he turned back northward and, And in time, he arrives back at his home base, his home church in Syrian Antioch, concluding what is referred to as Paul's second missionary journey. That's the end of that journey. And again, all Luke tells us is that he spent some time in Antioch and again departed. And now this is the the commencement of his third missionary journey, traveling far to the northwest, back into those regions of Galatia and Phrygia, where he and his team had previously proclaimed the gospel and planted churches. So why the hurry? Paul, what's what's your rush? Well, it's possible, (laughs) I think it probably is true, that the reality was different from the impression given. It may be that Luke's cryptic description of his of his movements in this passage are are attributable simply to the fact uh, that he lacked information about Paul's activities uh, in each place on in this particular leg of his journey, so that he's unable to do anything more than connect the dots on the map. But but what if Paul was in a hurry? What might have motivated him to get home, to to take care of business, get a little rest, and get on the road again? Uh, is it possible? that he was anxious about the spiritual condition of those spiritually immature believers that he and his team had left behind in those remote regions. I mean, when when we read earlier, when we studied earlier, uh, Paul's activity with his team there 
in Galatia and Phrygia and that, that part of the world, you know, they would evangelize. They'd be in a place a very short period of time. They'd establish a church. Uh, later, they would establish some leadership in that church, some elders. But they really didn't spend a whole lot of time. And so it, it makes sense that Paul might have been very concerned about how are they doing? How are they doing? Um, and, and, and felt an urgency um, about doing the very thing that Luke says he did, strengthening the disciples. And in strengthening the disciples, he in turn strengthened the churches. Uh, biblical scholars, biblical historians, um, believe that it would have been shortly after this particular visit to the regions of Galatia and Phrygia that Paul wrote the letter that we know as Galatians. And that letter was a circular letter. In other words, it was a letter that was to be passed between churches. And in that letter that we know as Galatians, he takes them to task for giving in to the influence of the Judaizers and embracing what he calls an entirely different gospel a gospel of works rather than one of grace. And and Paul, as you read Galatians, you sense that he's grief-stricken over the deception to which the churches in that region had fallen prey. Um, In this passage, we can observe in Paul two essential characteristics of the heart of a disciple-maker then. Uh, First, a heart that longs for deeper personal devotion to God, and second, a heart that is uh, concerned for the ongoing strengthening of uh, Christians, of, of disciples. So meanwhile, back in Ephesus, a new teacher rides into town, and his name is Apollos. Uh, he has much to show us about the heart of a disciple maker. Listen again as I read verses 24 to 28. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scripture that the Christ was Jesus. So let's review very quickly who this man was. He, first of all, was a Jew. He was a native of Alexandria, Egypt. Now, most of us rarely connect either Judaism or Christianity with Egypt. But up until about A.D. 50, Alexandria hosted an enormous Jewish community, huge population. And and Alexandria produced some of the greatest scholars of early Christianity. So, for example, if Jerusalem, if you think of Jerusalem as the, the spiritual center of Christianity and maybe um, Antioch as the, the missional center of Christianity, then we would think of Alexandria as the intellectual center of Christianity. It had one of the largest libraries in the world. It was a center for all kinds of scholarship. Luke tells us several things about further about this man. First, that he was eloquent. 
And the word that's translated eloquent there means not only that he was articulate and persuasive in his speech, but that those things flowed out of a reasoned and disciplined mind. He wasn't just good with words. Uh, those words flowed out of, of a trained, disciplined mind. Not surprisingly then, the second thing we learn about Apollos is that he was competent in the Scriptures. That is, that he handled the Scriptures with unusual power and authority. Now, he'd given himself to studying the Word of God. Third, Apollos had been instructed not only in the Word of God, but in the way of God, the way of the Lord. What does that mean? I think it just simply describes the the course of thinking and feeling and acting that the Bible prescribes. Uh, The thinking and feeling and acting which God approves. And so maybe we would simplify that to say that the way of the Lord is sound biblical doctrine expressed in practical biblical Christian lifestyle. Thinking, believing, doing. Luke notes as well that Apollos was fervent in spirit. And the word that's translated fervent there means to be boiling hot. Uh, boiling to over, to the point of overflowing. Like when you, you, you've left a liquid too long on the stove or in the microwave. And, and what it kind of tells us is that you couldn't be around Apollos without kind of getting some on you. You know, he was just, he was just overflowing all the time, bubbling hot. He was intense in his conviction. He was intense in his passion to teach and preach what he understood from God's word. Finally, Luke wants us to understand that Apollos taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew, and underline this in your Bible, if you have your own Bible, he knew only the baptism of John. Wow. In other words, he knew what was true regarding Jesus as far as his knowledge went. And he communicated that with accuracy and with boldness. Apollos must have been influenced by a disciple of John because he had accepted the ministry of John who came to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus and to prepare a people ready to receive him when he arrived. John, you may remember, pointed forward to his cousin Jesus. Uh, who, who he called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in this sense, the ministry of Apollos probably had more in common with an Old Testament prophet than with a New Testament evangelist. And that's where Priscilla and Achilla enter his story because they heard him preaching in the synagogue. And at some point they turned to each other and said, he doesn't know the rest of the story. He doesn't know the whole thing. And so we can only imagine the specific things that were lacking in his teaching. But, but if he knew only the baptism of John and what John had said about Jesus, then we might conclude that he didn't know about the life and the teachings of Jesus, his suffering and his death, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to the right hand of the Father and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. Rather than criticizing him for what he lacked, rather than pointing out his deficiencies in a a scolding manner. Priscilla and Achilla generously provided to him what he was lacking. And they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I love that. So read between the lines with me here, and let's observe together that Apollos possessed a teachable spirit. See, he might have said to them, 
You must not realize how big a deal I really am. Who, who are you to try to teach me? But he didn't do that. He graciously welcomed and received their teaching. And the proof is there in verses 27 to 28. When he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. So the brothers in Ephesus, whom I take to be the elders of the church in Ephesus, said, we're willing to endorse him. We're willing to say to other churches, you would be blessed by this guy's ministry. And when he arrived in Achaia, which again is southern Greece, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Isn't that a great definition of a Christian? Those who through grace had believed. There it is. What's the evidence? He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Where did Apollos go? To Achaia, to Corinth, where Paul had been previously. And the elders of the church in Ephesus affirmed and recommended him. Notice the effect of his ministry there. He helped the believers. He was a a source of help to the church, and he publicly refuted the Jews who rejected the claim of the Christians that the Christ, the promised Messiah, had come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it's it's a little tiny matter, but I just want you to observe something here in the text. It says there in verse 28 that he showed by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Some of your translations say that Jesus was the Christ. Why does it matter in a small way? Well, it matters in a small way because what was Apollo's starting point? Did he start with Jesus of Nazareth or did he start with what the Scriptures said about the Christ? And I think the answer is that he started with Christ. He said, look at what the Bible says, what your Scriptures say about who Messiah would be, what he would do, when he would come, all of that, and then he said, look at Jesus of Nazareth. All of that fits Jesus. I think that's what he was about. He was a powerful teacher. So let's summarize what we we have observed in Apollos that reveals the heart of a disciple maker. First of all, he gave himself to the study of God's word, which at, at that time was the Old Testament, the 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 books of Moses, the law, the prophets. He was passionate then also about the things of God. His spiritual passion fueled his persuasiveness. Someone once said regarding Christian ministry, if if you catch catch fire, people will come from all over to watch you burn. And I think that describes the ministry of Apollos. He didn't know everything, but he didn't let that stop him. What he did know, he taught with accuracy. A lot of us are, are inclined to say, well, man, I, I simply don't know enough about God's Word to be a disciple maker. Um, and that's, that, that's, a, that's a fixable problem. But the fact is, if, you, if you're here at LifePoint week after week receiving <clears throat> biblical teaching, you possess far more knowledge than you realize. Um, if you can articulate the simple message of the gospel, you know 
more than most of your neighbors. If you can recite a line from a Sunday school song like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, you know a whole lot more than most of the population of Olympia. So share what you do know. Don't be silenced by what you don't. Notice also that he had a teachable spirit. That's the key to spiritual growth and to ministry effectiveness. If you stop listening, you stop learning, you stop growing. He had a heart to help believers to grow in their faith. In fact, in so many ways, that that just comes down to a love for others and a recognition of the inspiration and the authority of God's word. And then finally, Apollos countered falsehood with biblical truth. So one of the things that's true, I think, of every believer, a true believer that I've ever ever known, is that when you know and love the truth, you want to correct falsehood when you hear it. There's... Uh, there's a, a, a reaction when you hear falsehood and you want, to, you want to say, hey, that's not true. Here's what's true. Here's what's true. And the more you know God's word, the more effective you will be in following through. Finally, let's not leave out those two disciple makers named Priscilla and Achilla. And you might be saying, disciple makers, I've, I've never thought of Priscilla and Achilla that way. Go go to chapter 18 in your Bible, verses 1 through 3. It says there, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found there a Jew named Achilla, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And when he went to see, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Priscilla and Aquila were Jewish believers in Jesus. They were Italians. They were tent makers by trade, uh, as was Paul. And they were decidedly hospitable. For the nearly two years that Paul was in Corinth, their house was his. He lived with them. In verses 18 to 19, uh, we read, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Achilla, so that when Paul departed Corinth, they accompanied him as far as Ephesus and, and, and they stayed there. And some believe that that Priscilla and Achilla financed Paul's entire journey back home and beyond, that they, they financed a good part of his ministry. And then notice verse 26 of chapter 18. He began, this is Apollos now, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Achilla heard him, they took him aside, literally took him to themselves or took him into their home and explained to him the way of God more Accurately. So here again, we see them demonstrating hospitality to Apollos, taking him uh, into their home, into their very lives. It was in their home that they instructed Apollos and what he didn't understand about the gospel. And so you see this powerful couple being very influential in the lives of two of the most powerful influencers in the first century church. Paul later wrote regarding Apollos to the church in Corinth, describing the the effects of both of their ministries. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, and the Lord gave the increase. God brought the growth. I I planted, Apollos watered. And so um, some people have called what, uh, what I see Priscilla and Aquila doing here, upward 
mentoring. That is having a discipling, encouraging influence uh, in the lives of people who may otherwise in some way or another be over you. Um, so needed, by the way, by every Christian leader, every Christian leader, and I'll include myself in that, needs some people who are willing to invest their lives in my ministry, in the life of a, the, the ministry of a leader, to encourage, to, uh, to instruct, sometimes maybe to correct, and, and, uh, but just to love, right? And, and to be there and encourage. Well, Paul, Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila, and you. <laughs> Let me land this plane. Again, at that definition that I shared with you earlier, disciple-making is coming alongside someone in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to help them take the next steps in their walk of faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. What we have seen in these disciple-makers, a heart for God, passion for Him, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, a heart for the truths of God's Word, a heart for God's people, whether individually or corporately, individual Christians or churches, a teachable spirit that says, I'm not done yet. God's not finished with me yet. I'm still in process. I've got a long ways to go, and so I'm willing to be taught. I'm willing to learn. And then finally, a willingness to be used by God in the lives of others. Listen now, in spite of whatever limitations, whatever disabilities, you may have. How can God use you and be willing to be used there? Communion is a ritual of disciple-making. Jesus said, do these things as often as you will in remembrance of me. Remember me. And so communion has, has always been essential to the life of discipleship. Why? It takes us back to where our spiritual life began. Jesus, on the last night that he was with his disciples, took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so they took that bread and they ate it, and let's do that together. And then near the close of that meal, Jesus took a cup, and in the Passover, it was the Passover meal, and in the Passover Haggadah, the the, the ritual, the 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 traditional Passover meal, the cup that Jesus picked up was called the cup of redemption. And he said something that was totally surprising to the disciples, that they didn't expect him to say because it it wasn't in the script that they had been brought up on. He said, this cup, my friends, this cup, my brothers, is the new covenant in my blood. What does that mean? He was saying, in essence, that, that this blood, like, like, like so many covenants that were ratified in blood, this blood is the ratification, the, the completion of the covenant that God made to Israel through Jeremiah 
the prophet, that that uh, he would write the law of God on their hearts, um, that he would remember their iniquities no more. And what Christ, what God does with our sin because of the blood of Christ is that he remembers it no more. That's different than saying God forgets your sin. God doesn't just forgive and forget. God never forgets. His, his knowledge is perfect. But he does something better. He remembers our sin no more, which means that he'll never leverage it against us. Once we have trusted in Christ, once we have entered into the covenant, which his blood ratifies, he'll never leverage our sin against us again. How good is that? And so he said, because that's true, that's true, drink this in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you this morning that, that each of us is here because someone somewhere chose to invest in us. But before that, it was because you chose us. We didn't choose you, but you chose us. You called us into relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. And so we thank you, and we thank you for those who have invested in our lives uh, to this day, whether it's family members or a teacher or a professor or a coach or uh, just a friend who, who came alongside in cooperation with the Holy Spirit and helped us take next steps along the way in our journey of faith and obedience. Lord, bless them, we pray, for their investment in our lives. And Lord, help us to live uh, accordingly to the investment they made and in in, uh, proportion to the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And Lord, help us not to shrink back from repeating that process in someone else's life for the sake of your kingdom, for for the sake of their spiritual growth, for the sake of future generations of believers that will come after because of our investment now. Help us to be faithful, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.